Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Thank you for your encouragements last week as we started this new Advent series and uh, through the book of Isaiah. It's funny, I was talking to my, my brother this week and his church is doing the similar thing, not the exact same thing. So we were comparing notes this week um, and our series is better, but uh, you know... Isaiah chapter 8, and much like we did last week, we're not going to stand and read um, all the way through it because we're going to cover from chapter 8, verse 11, all the way to 9, um, verse 7, Uh, but we are going to go kind of uh, line by line, verse by verse, as we did last week as we enter our second week of these Advent meditations under the title, So He Became Their Savior. Last week, you remember we looked at Uh, their need for a Savior. This week, we're going to be looking at the promise of a Savior. And so, as we walk through God's Word together, we remember uh, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His Word this morning. Lord, help us to see Your plan. Help us to see Your purposes. Help us to understand them more. We pray this morning for the person who may be here, who has not yet come to faith, that this might be a day in which you speak to dead bones, causing them to see and reason together that you are the Lord. For we who are your people, would you strengthen us in this fallen, broken world? Would you give us help both to pray and to act? Would you bless us by the presence of your Holy Spirit? Lord, we do not trust in the preparation that's made. We don't even trust in the emotions of our own heart. We trust in the arm of the Lord. And we pray that your wisdom, your honor, your glory and presence would be powerfully among us, not by volume or intensity, but by the conviction of the heart of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, we began last week in Isaiah chapter 1, looking at our need for a Savior and, and remember, if you recall, we noted the historical reality of the people of God Israel. We kind of want to enter into the audience, a, a nation that was born out of God's rescuing power from a particular group of people who were descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's covenant people by which he was, um, he was giving us a type, a picture of the New Testament church. They were given the oracles of God, they were given the word of God, the directions of God, the laws of God. They had as much light as anybody among all the nations of the earth. And as we read throughout the whole Old Testament, as we continue to see this people, this particular people, we recognize that they continued to wreck the program, as it were, over and over again. And at this point, we know that the kingdoms have now been divided, the monarchs who have been set up, Uh, Over the nation of Israel, which was in the north, they have fallen already to the Assyrian Empire. Remember, these aren't metaphors, right? These these are grounded in reality. These are things that historically happened. And so when they talk about their enemies and the threats that oppressed them, they were real people with real swords who would spill real blood. So the northern kingdom had fallen. The southern kingdom was, was still standing, but... God was coming along through the prophet Isaiah and others saying, it's not going to go well for you either. I'm sending another nation because as we read in chapter 1, your whole head is sick. 
from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. I'm sending an army against you, and essentially there's nothing you can do about it anymore. We saw last week in Isaiah chapter 1 that repentance is not going to turn this thing away. Your prayers are not going to turn this judgment away. Your now trying to obey will not turn this thing away. This is a judgment I have set, and other prophets in the midst of this are coming in against Isaiah, and they're saying, no, 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 no. There, there's still time, guys. We can, we can repent and we can revert this action of judgment. But, but one of God's main messages through Isaiah is that this is irreversible. Jerusalem will fall. There is not mercy at this point even available to you, people of Judah, by your repentance. And so as we start out in chapters eight, or chapter 8, verses 11 through 22, we begin to see the dire present circumstances for Israel. That's the first thing we note here is we see the dire present circumstances for Israel. Starting in verse 11 of Isaiah 8, those things we're going to read now say this, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me, that I should not walk in the way of this people. Y'all hear that? Oh, okay, sorry. All right, that's a phone. I was like, oh my goodness, Lord. All right, no. um, Your cannon is closed, I know. Um, All right. We're going to have to start over now, are we? All right. We still, uh, who who we got? Is that, oh, okay. It's okay. Nobody look. It's gonna be. It's gonna be. It's gonna be fine. All right. Verse eleven. We'll start again. Chapter eight, verse eleven. At least she's got her Bible open, ready. All right. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, "Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled." So here's the point: is, is the people they were afraid. They saw what happened in the northern kingdom. Again, enter into their mind. The same thing, Isaiah said, is going to happen through Babylon coming into the holy city, Mount Zion. It is coming, and Isaiah is now saying, you can't avert this. This is the Lord's plan. And the other prophets, again, they're saying, no, that's a conspiracy. Isaiah is not telling us the truth. Isaiah is not speaking on behalf of the Lord. And if you remember, we all know that text back in Isaiah chapter 6. I believe we read it last week when Isaiah is called. His, his main question is, Lord, how long do I have to give this message of judgment? The Lord's answer to him is, until there's basically nothing of the people of God left but a little branch that's shooting up. See, this is like a great forest that is going to completely burn down. In other words... Isaiah's message wasn't, repent and things will go well with you. It was, this, com- this whole thing is coming to utter destruction, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. So, the people were claiming against Isaiah, saying, you are a liar. We read on in verse 13, it says, the Lord of hosts, him shall you hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your Dread. The people are, of course, as we can imagine, they're fearing Assyria. They're fearing Babylon. They're fearing the destruction of the cities. And Isaiah, I'm saying to you, don't fear what they fear. Like, listen, how would you feel if I told you 
Just for example, ISIS in mass was on the East Coast coming into our nation right now. It is clear that they have everything in place to win and devastate us, that they're going to utterly flatten Florida. They are going to erase the major cities. But don't fear what everybody else is going to fear. In the midst of that, just fear the Lord. How would you like to be that prophet? How would you like to have that message on the news? You're a Christian pastor. Well, we've heard this great enemy, this terrorist organization is on the East Coast. They're they're coming. They're ready to launch in. They have already taken out all the major networks of fuel, food, and communications. They're coming in, and it is clear that they're going to win. What do you have to say, Christian pastor or minister? Well, I have to say, don't fear them, but fear the Lord of hosts. Him shall you hollow. Well, isn't this a terrible thing that these evil people are doing? Well, you know who's actually doing this? It's the Lord. Could could you even embrace that? Because that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. God raised up to bring judgment against Israel. Could you embrace that God truly is sovereign? And if that's the case, then God is intending purposes far beyond what we can comprehend in all things. Therefore, we ought not to fear. Then he goes on in verse 14, speaking of the Lord. He says, he will be as a sanctuary. Now, there's some good news, right? Because in the midst of this, he's going to be the protective place the place to which people will be able to flee and find refuge. But again, verse 14, not only is the Lord a sanctuary, but what else is he? But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's the message that God has to bring regarding the judgment and deliverance of his people. Some people are going to be walking along and they're going to to trip over it. People are going to fall on their face inadvertently when they hear what it is that God has to say. He will do that. And notice, he's going to do that to both houses of Israel. He says, to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God is going to be like a trap that's set. And at the right time, the trigger is going to come clapping down and trapping Jerusalem. By the way, no wonder Isaiah said, Lord, how long am I going to have to preach this message? How'd you like to be that guy, right? Verse 15, he goes on. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. That's all if you notice a direct quote of what God is telling Isaiah. But notice in verse 16, the the quote ends there. What's he supposed to do with that? Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. In the midst of all of this, there's still a remnant of people, a remnant of disciples who are saying, we believe this message is true. When we look across the horizon and we see Babylon coming with their horses, chariots, and siege engines, we believe this is the Lord coming in judgment. So what will we do in verse 17? And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. He's hiding his face behind that Babylonian army that's coming. And he goes on to say, Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given. We are for signs and wonders in Israel. 
That, that's the, the disciples themselves are a sign for Israel. The remnant are the people who Israel is to look at and say, these are the Lord's people. These are the ones who are trusting in God's deliverance from this whole thing. It says, from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And now he's going to go ahead and tell the people how they're going to respond. They are not going to like that message. They're going to look instead for some future alternatives or some alternative futures. And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter. What does that mean? Well, these are people who supposedly interacted with the dead. Now, they know that they're not supposed to do this, but they're basically coming to Isaiah saying, Isaiah, man, as your PR guy, you need a new message. Why don't you go to the specialist of our day, inquire of some of the the mediums or the wizards. What do they do? They whisper and they mutter. And and when they do that, you should say, Isaiah, verse 19, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, to the law, the teaching of the word of God, and to the testimony, their prophet, of their prophet, verse 20 of chapter 8, to the law and to the testimony, they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. And if there's no light in them, we know that that means there's only darkness. There's only darkness in them. There's not even the glimmer of light that you see uh, when the sun just begins to come up. And you have not yet seen it come over the horizon. But you can tell the sky has just turned a light color. He said, these people who go to these necromancers and others, those who won't speak according to the law or to the prophets, they don't even have dawn. They don't even have just a little bit of light in regards of a solution for you. None of it. Verse 21. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. That is, in rejecting the Lord, there will be terrible consequences to God's covenant people, in this case, the nation of Israel. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. They'll curse their king. They'll say, this is your fault, government. And they'll curse their God, saying, this is your fault, Lord. So they're enraged. They're hungry. They're distressed, passing through the land without a home. This is a picture of Jerusalem after it's devastated. And who are they screaming at? They're screaming at their king, at their God. And they will turn their faces upward. They will will say, what is going on here? Verse 22 of chapter 8. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Now this is what's coming for Israel, right? We know historically when Babylon comes to Jerusalem, at least a large part of all of this historically happened in 586. In 722, I'm sorry, BC. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. In 586 BC is when the southern kingdom falls to Babylon and they are taken into exile. This is the present circumstances and where they're headed to. This is what's coming, and they're being told at this moment there is absolutely nothing to avert, nothing to change this in any way. You can change prophets all you want. You can gather yourself prophets who will say, peace, peace, but there is no peace for you, Jerusalem. And so the end of chapter 8, it's fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem when Babylon overthrows that nation and scatters them abroad. And that brings us to chapter 9. 
in the midst of that, God gives them this picture of a glorious future for God's people. That's what we begin to in chapter 9. You, we love chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It's one of those Christmas verses. You cannot read that without the context of chapter 8, right? It, it doesn't mean nearly as much as it does when you see it in light of what happens in chapter 8. In fact, just pretend that the 9 isn't there in your Bible. Those numbers were added in. It's all one letter, one prophecy. It's part of the same section. Even though these people are thrust into gloom of anguish and thick darkness, the story is not over for them. Verse 1 of chapter 9 here in a glorious future for God's people. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. So, so even God's saying, yes, judgment is coming. There's nothing you can do about it, Israel. But I'm going to do something about it. The time is going to come for those who are now in the gloom of anguish, that there will be no anguish whatsoever. That there will be no more gloom. He says in verse 1, As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, you recognize that those are two of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? You, you go to your Bible map section. If you have one of those at the end of your Bible, you, you go up to the Sea of Galilee. You go slightly west, and those are Naphtali and Zebulon. They were called the way of the sea, the way of the Gentiles, because that's the way that destruction is going to come. When Assyria came, you want to know how Assyria came? They came the way the Gentiles, around the Red Sea, because of the resources they had to sustain armies. They came by way of Zebulun and Naphtali. By the way, if you know those two tribes, neither one of them drove out all the Gentiles from their allotments of land in the book of Joshua and Judges. So, so this was always a place that was on the border of the wicked. They were constantly a thorn in their side. It says, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. See, the very means of their destruction, the Lord says, will become a way of their salvation. So something is going to happen up in that area. Just keep that in mind for, for a moment, right? Something's going to happen up in that area, and notice how he describes it. This is the land beyond the Jordan. This is the land, the Galilee of the nations. There's something coming from there, and he's going to bring light, hope, and salvation from that. You already kind of know what that answer is, don't you? Just put a pin in it, and, and it's, just, it's more exciting when we see it together in God's Word, isn't it? So don't spoil it from everybody else, okay? Then he breaks out in this poetry in verse 2. He uses this metaphor. He says, the people who walked in darkness. Isn't that a terrible thing? I can Listen, I feel like I know my house like the back of my hand. Um, but I also have kids, so there's, <laughs> there's toys on the ground. If I try to walk in darkness, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to bump into something, right? I'm going to hurt for a bit. I'm going to step on a Lego, which were purposely made, which we should use in our military, I think, um, at some level to inflict pain. It's a terrible thing. You ever been in a room or your house and it's totally dark? How do you like being in there before? You, you like somebody just turn the light on so I can see something. Well, here are people who have walked over time in darkness, anguish, despair, but now they've seen a great light, a, a joyous light. And how joyous light must be when you've walked in darkness so long. It says, 
We've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. Just think Mordor, right? How would you like to live at the foot of Mount Doom? Sucking in all the terrible gases, smells, the orcs, the foulness of all that. Hey, where were you born? I was born in Mordor, the foot of Mount Doom. How was that? What was that like growing up? Well, they're not building any condos there, I can tell you that, right? These are people who dwelt in the land of deep, deep darkness. And what happened? Upon them, a light has shined. Isn't that hopeful for these people? In verse 3, you have the consequence of that in contrast to the former time where there are just a remnant of people left and they're almost all cut off as we saw last week, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the nation has been multiplied. In the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, now the nation is massive. It's got many people. And what happens? You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of my harvest. There are only a few of us, by the way, who really knows what this is like. To have both feast and famine. To have your life being sustained depending on whether the harvest is good or not. But for most of these people, the harvest coming was life, and the harvest not coming was death. Not metaphorical death, by the way. I mean, really dead. Not mostly dead. Really dead. And so it's like that. It's these people who will have a joy at harvest. And it says, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Then these people have been so oppressed by their enemies. Look what happens in verse 4 of Isaiah 9. For you've broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Of course, that's referring to to Gideon, right? And Gideon's army, the 300 coming against a massive army, which the odds were so absurdly off kilter, you thought there's no way this is going to happen. He says, this is what it's going to be like. What good news, by the way, for people who are living under oppression, who have real physical enemies, who have beaten them, trodden them down, plundered their women, re-educated their children, and they're being told the yoke you have carried, it's going to be taken off. The staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken. Again, this is prophetic action. They will be at eternal peace from their enemies. This is what God has promised his covenant people as they come into the land. It's what they forfeited over and over again. And now he again is giving them hope. He's pointing them forward to a future promise. Verse 5 of Isaiah 9. For every warrior's sandal... From the noisy battle, and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. The very boots that trampled us, that carried our enemies to destroy and devastate us, those sandals are being burned because there's no war anymore. Well, how about their garments? Well, when they're finished slaughtering our people and they're rolled up in our own blood, what's going to happen to our enemies' garments? They'll be totally burned. You know why? Because they will not need them anymore. And so all of that is an incredible promise to the people of God. In the midst of judgment coming, and there's nothing you can do about it, the Lord says, yet a time is coming when light will dawn and you will have joy, when your enemies will be overthrown, when you will never be in bondage or enslaved to anyone or anything ever again. 
all of this I'm promising to do to the point that I can speak of it as if it's already finished. I, I can paint a portrait that shows it so accurately that you can look at that portrait and in it have hope. And friends, that is a glorious future for God's people, isn't it? Again, friends, this is us. We have been grafted in. We are now the children of Israel. But, but think of it in terms of the original audience. If this was your nation, your people, your children, your leaders, how then, the question becomes, is this going to happen? How in the world is the Lord going to accomplish this? Well, we come thirdly and finally to the promised son. The promised son. There is one who is going to come and accomplish this. He begins to be described to us in verse 6. Notice the word for, by the way. It's a little preposition that basically means this is how this is going to happen. So really what we've seen already is we've seen the end. We've seen the final scene in verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah chapter 9 and all of its glory. We've seen the opening scene in Isaiah 8, 11 through 22 where they are now. Well, how did we get from that to this? Well, it has to do with a son that will be born. Isn't this always an interesting phrase? We say it every Christmas, repeats off our lips, but it is a very intriguing phrase. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And what will this one do? What will he be? How will he accomplish it? God through Isaiah says this is how. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Literally, the government is upon his shoulder. This is a prophetic present. They, they put it in the future because it's a prophecy, and it would just make more sense when we translate it into English. But literally, this is so certain. The metaphor is you see him now as a man, and what's resting upon his shoulder? It's a government. Now, if you're like me, we, we don't really like that term, right? We go immediately into Ron Swanson mode, right? At least I don't. When you think of government... You think of things that are necessary in a fallen world and corruption. But this word also means, of course, dominion, lordship, control of all things. So he, he's going to govern things. It means he is, is bearing the full weight of it. It's not shared with anybody else. The government is upon this son's shoulders. And what will people do in response to that? They're going to see the government on his shoulders, and what is it that they will say? Well, they'll say, this is his name, this is his reputation, this is the government, the dominion he will exercise, and his name will be called Wonderful, All-Inspiring, Majestic. And I, I don't know about you, but there aren't very many wonderful politicians right now that make me feel that way. There are none of them that I think, man, he's just so wonderful just give him the entire government. He doesn't even need checks and balances. He's so good, wise, just, true, so loving that we can just shut down all the branches of government and put the entire government upon his shoulders. That's how wonderful he is. He is counselor. That is, he is the one who gives good counsel. Nobody gives him counsel. He isn't going around trying to figure out how to do this. He doesn't have a council of people next to his throne. He isn't thinking, I don't, I don't know what to do about this. I need some wise men around me. He's the wisest of the wise men. Wise men come to him. 
He doesn't consult with anybody else. He's wonderful. He's counselor. He is mighty God. He won't simply be man, but fully God, fully man. I'll come back to that later. What else is he? Everlasting Father. Does that mean he is the Father? Are we getting into Trinitarianism right now? Well, I'm not going to dig into that because they really wouldn't have understood that at this point. What it essentially means is, is the Father is the one who is the leader. That is the one who is not going to die. He's not going to have to ever give over his throne. This is the one who's going to rule in this way forever and ever. He is everlasting. He is Father. He is Prince of Peace. That is, when he comes and fully exercises his authority, you know what the consequence is going to be? Peace. Peace. No more wars. So if you're like me, and you're one of those guys that that loves to study about tanks and guns and warfare, did you know there's going to be a time where you're going to have no interest in that whatsoever? Did you know that? Why? Because when he comes in fullness of power, he is going to bring to the world what the world longs for, which is peace. That is what he's going to bring about, the joy and happiness as at harvest. This is the one who will be the prince of peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So so listen, this isn't some little corner of the world kingdom. It's not even going to rest itself in in Jerusalem indefinitely, but of the increase of his government, there will be no end. In other words, it will never be thwarted. It won't be like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Medo-Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. It's not like this land grab. It's not like the things we deal in our day on the borders of Russia. Who's coming in? Who has control? The picture now is of a king that is so great that the increases of his dominion will never cease and they'll never shift. Everywhere he conquers, he will conquer once and for all. Verse 7. Now, this should mean something to us as a church family. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. So we already know, because we've spent some time in 2 Samuel, but the Jewish people would hear this. They would hear that this is a son of David, that this is a, a promised son, and they would immediately go back where? 2 Samuel chapter 7. Right? When God, through the prophet Nathan, told David, you're not going to be a house. I'm going to build you a house. They would firmly understand this is a son of David who is coming. He will establish it, order it, and he will do so with judgment and justice. There is no evil in this one. By the way, what a great promise to a people. Remember all those terrible kings? Have you ever read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel even? You get tired of reading about all of those kings who just failed over and over and over again. There are very few, would you think, boy, I wish I would have him as president. I wish I had that kind of king. Nevertheless, this one, everywhere he goes, judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever. This is what this king is going to do. When we have kind of the final phrase here in this section that says the the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He will bring the promised son to sit on the throne of David. There will be peace and the enemies will be put away forever. 
There will be joys with a harvest and spoil. Can you just imagine if you were one of these Jews and as you looked over the walls of Jerusalem and saw the Babylonian army coming across the plain, you hear the promise, a child is coming. A son will be born. Despite what we see now, when they've pushed the walls of Jerusalem and they have set our homes on fire, when they're pillaging, murdering our beloved city and its inhabitants, when they're taking us in shackles back to the capital city of Babylon, as we go back there, as we sit by the river Euphrates, and they say to us, now sing a sure song, O Zion, how much hope they would have. There's a son coming, and we will hold on until he does. This was Israel's longing. Those who really trusted the Lord Others will continue to follow false prophets, follow mediums, other people. But there was still a remnant who said, Oh, we're waiting for the son of David to come and release us. Come and bring peace. Come and overcome our enemies. Come and bring joy. May your zeal, O Lord, and the salvation of Israel come to us. Oh, Emmanuel, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Now imagine waiting 400 years for that promise. You wouldn't be waiting that long, by the way. Don't know if you know that. Humans don't live that long. But you you tell it to your children, and your children tell it to their children, and their children tell it to their children. And over 400 years later, the words of Isaiah echo through the homes of the Jewish people. They take up other languages. They begin to dress like the Babylonians, but their heart is still in Jerusalem. And then the people are allowed, even by circumstances, God's providence, to go back in the city. They're able to build the temple under Herod. And what are they crying? Oh, son of David, come. Who is this one? Well, now imagine as a Jewish man, woman, boy or girl, growing up in the setting, opening up the book of Matthew. And and imagine Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. That starts this way. The book of the genealogy of of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's why, by the way, Matthew starts with a genealogy. It's not to drive us crazy with our Bible reading program because we don't know what to do with it. Oh, no, here come the names again. It's a promise of the fulfillment of the son of David to prove this is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. You're supposed to read Matthew 1 and say, this is him. Then you look at Matthew 4.12, speaking of Jesus. You remember Zebulon and Nephtali? Remember that promise? Something's coming from that area. Matthew 4, verse 12, speaking of Jesus now, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist had been put in prison, he departed Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And in case you're thinking, well, that's just coincidence. How do you know that's a direct fulfillment of that prophecy? Well, keep reading. See, even in fleeing for his own safety temporarily, he's fulfilling this prophecy. He does that, verse 14, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region... In shadow of death, light has dawned. There's the sun. The light dawning on Israel. We're in darkness under the bondage of our sin. We're slaves of 
foreign human governments, but if you look up into the area of the Gentiles, the, the area that's known for the enemy approaching, there's a light up there. I can see the light dawning back there. He has come. Emmanuel has come. In verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, the presence of God, the, God's people and God's place under God's rule of joy, of peace, of my reign, of my dominion, it is here. That's why Matthew writes the way he does to demonstrate to the people, this is the guy. Why it makes it heartbreaking that John records in chapter one, he came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So so get this. This was Israel's longing. And now what do we do with this? What application do you and I make of this? Do Do you feel the historical longing for this man to come? Well, I want to point one more thing out to you back in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14, where it speaks of Yahweh. It tells us, He'll be a sanctuary, as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. When we come to the New Testament, we find the Lord Jesus Christ himself fulfilling this very role. That is, he is the one who is the sanctuary for those who flee for refuge. He's the one that you find safety in from the wrath of God itself. Listen to me. You can't just stand before God and say, forgive me. There is no forgiveness barefaced before God. Did you hear that? You can't just go stand before God in his justice, in any kind of religion, and say, I'm here, forgive me. There is absolutely zero, no forgiveness unless you flee to Jesus Christ. He becomes the sanctuary from the wrath of God. But notice what else it says. He becomes a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. That's what God himself is in the bringing about of Israel's peace, will become to some of those in Israel. And who is the New Testament identified over and over as that one? It's Jesus. Paul uses it in Romans. Peter uses it in his first letter. And so embedded in this, not only a child who is born and a son who is given, it is Yahweh, the Lord himself, who is coming. That's why the word Emmanuel, the word God with us, means more than God is just kind of helping us along our way. It means that God comes. And again, that's either true or it's folly. But the reality is, isn't that really what everybody longs for to some degree? There's a recognition that there's a lot of darkness in our world right now, isn't there? It's always been there. We're just paying a little bit more attention. I think I said this Wednesday night, but I really don't buy that the world is more evil than it's ever been. Just read a history book. Maybe we've been a little more sheltered, but, but friends, the world has been evil for a long time. There's injustice. There's a lot of conversation these days from everything from racism to gun control to gang shootings to the mutilation of children in the womb and out of the womb. There's a sense of this ain't right. You have people who have no foundation of belief, religiously or otherwise, who know themselves it isn't right. There's evil, there's hatred, and it's not like, well, that's just the way it is. It's okay, let's leave it. There's a sense of, of longing. We want something better than this. There's a longing for joy, for peace, for evildoers to stop doing what they do. But the world has the same problem that Israel had. The word of the Lord comes, and they say, don't you dare speak to us. They go to all kinds of other things. 
There are different voices that are inquired of. There are as many gods now as there were in Israel. There's the God of technology. We're going to fix this world by connecting everybody and globalization. Let's get everybody around the world talking. Well, have you looked at the internet recently? Have you looked at the comment section of literally anything? How in the world has greater connectivity worked for us? Has man done some great things with technology? Absolutely. But is it our Messiah? Is it our hope? Science has brought wonderful things, wonderful things, of course, like the discovery of penicillin advancements and mathematics. All of these things are wonderful. So are we going to fix oppression and problems by just pursuing sciences? Well, the bombs we've built, the weapons we've built, the viral warfare shows that things, those things are not the solution in and of themselves, are they? Well, we need education. But with educational theory changing every two or three years, this, that, or the other, who's going to educate the educators? Now we have people with college degrees who just can't get jobs. I'm not sure that's going to fix everything. There's a longing for good politicians. And yet the best ones seem to still have some degree of scandal or problems with them. In the history of the world, there hasn't been a lot of really good leaders, have there? Well, let's pursue social justice. And then you find pursuing social justice often creates and alienates other causes, causing further injustice. Or you watch someone say they're for social justice only to line their own pockets with selfish purposes. You say, where's the justice in that? So we distract ourselves then. Okay, what about entertainment or sports or other things that are good in and of themselves? But when we think this is the thing that will bring me peace, this is the thing that will bring me rest, I'll just pretend that that's not out there. I'll put my fingers in my ears, and I'm not going to look at the news or news feeds. I'm going to glutton myself on entertainment and amuse myself to death. But have those ever really delivered anybody? What nation can you look at now and say, peace Peace, ongoing peace, love, and kindness. People long for it. Non-Christians long for that love, long for peace. And while all of these things have their proper place and, and are in some sense necessary, they will never be the means of deliverance of you and I's deepest problems. Actually, it's the idolatry of those very things that create more of the same darkness. Right? Somebody really immerses themselves in these things saying, I'm going to fix the world. And it becomes some kind of modern tyranny or idolatry. So what's the hope? Well, as we read this passage this morning, the hope is to believe in and worship the son of David. <laughs> because this is the guy. This is the guy that not only historically did they kill but historically, he's the one who busted up out of that grave, didn't he? He raised from the dead. And so as Christians, this prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus came, it's a historical fact. And yet here he comes out of Galilee, healing, proclaiming, dying, being raised from the dead. And so this response to that is simple. It is let us believe. Let us worship him. Isn't worshiping going a little too far? I would say from these passages, no, absolutely not. Yahweh is the one who became a sanctuary. He is the one who became a stone of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. He is the mighty God who came. That's why we believe that Jesus is not just a good man or good prophet. 
that he's God in the flesh. And our natural response to knowing him and being saved by him is that we, we celebrate him. Not just one day a year where even that's being fought over continually, but every single day. Because Christmas represents what is true the other 364 days of the year. That is, the Son of David came, and He came to die for our sins and purchase for us a righteousness we could never attain, and He Himself is our only hope. Praise be to God. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? Father, we believe as your people that a light has been given. Would you help us look to him? Would you help us to worship him? Help us to know more of him and help us to more fully live in his kingdom, even in this world. Lord, may we love his laws. May we do it because we love you and our neighbor as ourself. Father, how we thank you for that baby who was born, son of David came to be our king, the one to whom one day every single knee shall bow and every tongue, including every tongue in this room, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, our prayer is that knees and tongues would be used now for the proclamation of who he is and not in that day as the resistance of an enemy. Lord, would you do it by the preaching of your word and the power of your spirit? Would you cause those who do not yet to believe to believe in your Son? Would you cause us who are tempted to find our distractions and hope in anything other than the Son of David coming into this world, dying for our sins, and in the second coming of his return? Lord, that you would convict us and allow us to repent and return to fixing our eyes solely on the light that has dawned into the darkness of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Church family, we come to a time of invitation. The invitation is hopefully pretty clear for those of us who are in in Christ, and we know this, do not be distracted by anything this season, but see the light that has come into darkness, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And simply believe in him and worship him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, that is the call to you. That is something that none of us, if we're honest, really do all that well. And if you think that you do it all that well, I would argue that's your proof you're not really doing it all that well. Um, but if you're like us and you need just constant help with that, if there's something just in your life that you want to confess to a brother or sister, this is the time and place to do it, is right here among people who love you, who love King Jesus, and who are, who are actively looking for opportunities to serve and be with one another. Uh, but for those of you who, who may be here this morning, and maybe you just wrestle with where you stand with the Lord, maybe you know yourself not to be a Christian, following him by faith, would you hear uh, the one uh, who has been promised to his people, the one who we celebrate every year and every day of every year, and it's King Jesus, the one who came and lived a perfect life, a life that you could not live, that you did not live, um, and even if you could live, you would choose not to live. He lived it perfectly in obedience to his Father's law, his Father's promises, which meant that he did not um, have sin in him in any way, shape, or form. The problem with you and I is we do, and that means that we're actually deserving of a judgment at some point, that we have broken God's law, and he is a just God, a fair God, uh, and he will punish those who break his law. And so apart from someone dying in our place, someone fulfilling the law on our behalf, someone living out the law on behalf, you and I would stand before God, and we would have to prove how good we are in front of him. I don't know about you, that sounds like a fun day to me, right? 
The reality is if we put your deepest, darkest moments on these screens behind us and showed them for everyone in this room, you'd run out of here and never show your face again. But, but the Lord sees all. He knows every bit of your unrighteousness and your sin. And yet, He still, because of His love, sent His precious Son to die for those sins. To pay the penalty that you and I deserve to pay, He paid it. And if you would but repent of those sins and believe in this promised one, have faith in Him, trust in Him until the day you die, you too can have hope of eternal life. You can look as the, as the New Testament people of Israel, you can look to the horizon and you can see the hope in the midst of this dark and twisted generation. And it can provide you with the joy of knowing that when the harvest comes, we'll be a part of it and it will be peace, peace forevermore. But it only comes through Christ. So if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus by faith, then make today that day. We're going to end our services soon, but the services are never really end until the Lord's done working. So if you would like to, to come after the service, we'll have men down front. We'll stay here as long as we possibly can to share with you, answer any questions you have, and walk through with you what it means to be a child of the King, to long for this promised one. And for the rest of our church family, um, I hope you have a wonderful Lord's Day. It's been a pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm going to have your turn, right? Brother Justin's going to come read the benediction. Brother Tony Alvarez is going to close us in a word of prayer first. Brother Justin's going to come read the benediction. I'll be at the back of our sanctuary to greet any guests. God bless each and every one of you. I love you, church family, and I love the word of God. Have you been refreshed by it this morning? I pray that you have.